Welcome to Sofa Security Chat Chat, episode 182 for the 21st of January, 2015. I'm Chester Wisniewski here once again with Paul Ducklin. Hello, Chester. When you said the 21st of January, I thought it's the solstice, but of course I'm a month out of date. That's how quickly we're speeding into 2015. Or maybe it's the orthodox solstice or something, perhaps. (laughs) Maybe. I'm happy to get the chat chat done today because I'm off to uh, Calgary, which is everybody's dream in the wintertime is to head off to Calgary, Alberta. On that note, the the reason I'm going to Calgary is actually to discuss a bit of uh, security around embedded SCADA, industrial control systems, all this kind of stuff. And it turns out there's there's some stories in the news this week, unfortunately, about more insecurity on these, um, I guess, as everybody likes to call it these days, Internet of Things. Are you talking about the little dongle that you plug into your car that works out whether you're a good driver or not? And if you are, if you don't brake too hard and you don't drive in the middle of the night too much, then it drops your premium. But unfortunately, doesn't bother with encryption or any other sort of operating system security that we kind of take for granted at all, anywhere, apparently. Well, I guess, yeah. I mean, we're obviously we're not talking about uh, power plants here. Whenever we're embedding things that communicate over the internet, cellular networks, TCP, IP, all this stuff, we seem to be just willy-nilly putting this stuff in absolutely everything now. And when we do, we're not necessarily giving it the thorough going over that we expect. You're talking about the car dongle um, from, I guess it's Progressive Insurance in the U.S. that has it as an optional thing, uh, like you say, to get a discount. But we're also seeing it in all kinds of things like home routers again. Like those mobile banking apps that we've talked about so often that should be secure and you're invited to assume they're secure, turns out they're not. This is the same sort of problem. You plug in the router. When you access it from the inside, as you normally would on the inside interface, it pops up a login screen. You log in and then you can access all the configuration pages. You might notice, hey, they're not HTTPS. That's a great pity. Really should be, but okay, I'll live with that because it's on the inside interface. What you don't expect is that by default, it's actually listening on the outside interface so that it can be administered from the internet. Not only is it listening on the outside interface, whoever programmed it kind of forgot about the authentication. So on the inside, they forgot about encryption. On the outside, they forgot about the encryption and the authentication so anybody can wander in. How on earth can a bug like that get past even the most basic acceptance testing? Yeah, it's 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 pretty atrocious. And the problem here, from my perspective, is often that there's no consumer choice. Uh, you know, there has been a lot of discussion in the United States about the net neutrality rules and whether, um, you know, the FCC will classify Internet providers as a class two regulatory thing. But one of the pieces of that that people aren't talking about is the, you know, the option of choosing what device you plug into your network. And in a lot of American cable providers and DSL providers today, they issue one of these insecure routers, not necessarily this model and perhaps not this insecure, but often with firmware flaws, problems, WPS enabled that you can't turn off, all these types of things that we've talked about in the past related to Wi-Fi routers. And many of them require that you're only allowed to use their device and you must pay them to rent it every month and you can't plug in your own thing. Yes, I even had a discussion once with a network provider and it turned out that they would provide routers customer premises equipment and you couldn't even get the source code 
of the Linux and related open source software that they used on it because they didn't treat it as being public. Your access to our network starts at the Ethernet ports where you plug into our device and the firmware is off limits. So no, you can't look at it. We won't show you the source code. You can't change it. And if there are bugs in it, well, you just don't worry your pretty little head about it. Uh, needless to say, I didn't use that network provider. Yeah, uh, hopefully these things will continue to get better. The more we have these conversations publicly, the more people inquire with their internet providers about what choices they have and what information is available. Maybe that'll apply some pressure. You never know. Just like last week's chat chat, this week we have another patch situation to discuss. Of course, it's the quarterly patch cycle from Oracle, which they call the critical patch update. Or CPU. No chance of confusion there. No, none at all. And this this quarter, they're covering 167 vulnerabilities uh, in total. Uh, how many products? I think you counted the products, Paul. I did. I did a cut and paste into an editor that shows line numbers, and I got to 48. Oracle database server is at the top, and in a fit of uh, non-alphabetical order, MySQL server is at the bottom. And of course, some of those products have up to 10 different versions that get their own patches. So chances are, if you have anything with the word Oracle in it, uh, anywhere in your organization, you're going to need to go and fix it. Yeah, and as, as people continually tell me, they can't seem to get rid of Java, so we can assume nearly everybody has Java somewhere in their environment. Um, that's obviously the most web-exposed uh, product that Oracle distributes. Now, this quarter, again, there's 19 fixes for Java that cover 14 remote code execution vulnerabilities, which are the really dangerous ones that we look out for. So um, this is a pretty big deal. Get those Javas patched if they're out there. It's kind of weird to me that this comes about a week later after there was a pretty big spam campaign trying to fish people that promised that it was an Oracle security update. And at first I chuckled because I'm like, ah, <laughs> Oracle hardly ever does security updates. But I kind of forgot that we were on the quarterly cycle. We were so close to the, the real deal. I wonder if the crooks blundered and forgot that Oracle doesn't do the second Tuesday and uh, went a little bit early with their spam. I have no idea. Uh, I, I'm glad I don't think that much like a criminal. <laughs> Now, since Microsoft, uh, I've had to bring Microsoft up, and Microsoft and Google seem to be having a still continuing spat, and I, I was speculating about, are, are zero days going to be the new norm, you know, now that this Project Zero thing at Google seems to have kicked off in, in, uh, in full swing now, and it apparently is so. It was the first podcast of the year, wasn't it? Google had outed a bug in Windows on the 30th of December. Even battle-hardened penetration testers were going, God, that's a bit cruel. Couldn't you have waited a couple of days? Was it really that important? Then they did it again two days before Patch Tuesday. And you're right, you were saying, hey, is this the new normal? That we're just, you know, zero days are going to come out algorithmically, even from the good guys, and we'll all have to react faster. So I suppose it's good that the world is under a bit of pressure. It's a pity that Google doesn't put the members of its Android ecosystem under similar pressure, as we have said before. The wider computer using community as a whole is pretty bad at responding even to scheduled patches and, and things that we know we need to do. And, and this sort of just amps up the risk level for those people to an even greater level. Yes, I think if the Motor Vehicle Licensing Authority can give me two weeks grace when my license disk expires, Google could have given Microsoft two days, <laughs> wouldn't you say? Seems like it. 
But I mean, businesses don't always behave rationally, and and Marriott's a great example of that. There's been a controversy with Marriott going on now for oh, I guess close to eight or nine months. I think this began when the Federal Trade Commission fined Marriott uh, about six hundred thousand U.S. dollars for intentionally interfering with people's Wi-Fi devices in their conference centers at Gaylord Hotels, which is a a chain Marriott purchased in the United States. And um, you know, Marriott paid their fine, but then they filed a petition. They wanted the right, for security reasons, to be able to basically disable people's MiFi's because they wanted to make sure that nobody could impersonate the Marriott conference networks and perhaps uh, man-in-the-middle people's traffic, this kind of thing. So they were basically asking for permission to send Wi-Fi de-auth packets to anything uh, that they found in the physical properties of their, their hotels. It was very unpopular. They, they reversed their decision this week. Is there really any security ever when you're using open Wi-Fi? I mean, it would, even if Marriott were allowed, would it make a difference? Chester, my reading of this is, if anything, you can argue that it goes against security. We recommend, in fact, last year we did it just before everyone was going to be setting off for the RSA conference, which is the kind of big event of the year in terms of visitor numbers, isn't it? If you can, buy a prepaid SIM when you arrive at the airport or get you know, negotiate a decent roaming plan on your mobile phone. And then when you arrive in a foreign country, you don't have to jump on open Wi-Fi, connect to your mobile phone and go through the mobile network because there is less that can go wrong in terms of being sniffed. And so what Marriott is saying to improve security, we're going to prevent visitors who wish to use their mobile phones from connecting to those phones sitting right next to them by Wi-Fi. So the moral of the story is carry a USB cable or a lightning cable with you and tether your device instead because they can't stop you doing that. Like you, I do not buy the improvement of security at all. I say it actually makes security a little bit worse because it means you can't use a network that you know you've set up yourself and you think you can trust. Yeah, I I completely agree. And it, it was absurd to me just from the fact that, of course, their Wi-Fi is unencrypted. So um, by forcing me to use their Wi-Fi, I'm being forced to allow anybody to see all of my data. Somebody who wishes ill will to visitors doesn't need to set up a fake access point. They can just sit there and listen to all the traffic. Like, it's unprotected already. The man in the middle is too difficult when you can just sit there and sniff. Which I guess raises the question, what would the pirate party do? Oh, dear. (laughs) That's an amusing story, I have to admit. A chap by who goes by the redolent title of Pirate Party Youth Wing Chairman in Sweden, decided to hang out at a uh, security and defense conference, set up a rogue access point, just giving it the name Open Guest, and was very unpleasantly surprised that 100 people at this conference, of all conferences where you think people might be a little bit cautious, jumped onto his network and did you know, exactly the same sort of casual stuff that I guess you and James from Sophos have seen when you do your war biking surveys. Guys, when you jump on open Wi-Fi, even if it's the one the hotel provided, even if it comes from Marriott, whatever they're charging you, if it's open Wi-Fi, anyone sitting around you, anyone within radio reach can read everything that you do. This is why I, I personally, I mean, We'll get a product pitch in here, but I use the free edition of our Surface UTM at home just for that very reason. It provides me VPN. I can VPN to it from my iPhone. I can VPN to it from my Android. You know, I'm, I'm leaving for the airport in, in about an hour uh, when we conclude the podcast. And when I go, I'm going to go to the lounge. They got pretty good high-speed internet in the lounge there, but it's open Wi-Fi provided by my, my airline. 
soon as I sit down, I push the VPN connect button. The only disadvantage, I guess, is it can be a little bit slower because the packets have to go from where you are to your home network and then back out. But with the performance of modern networks, that's a small price to pay compared to someone you've never met and whom you'll never know working out everything that you've done and read. That's true. And another thing uh, I've done in the past that uh, folks may want to do if they don't have any infrastructure, if they don't have a a cloud host that they can put VPN or SSH tunnels on or something at home uh, is Tor. The thing I love about Tor, Chester, is that it kind of gives you a world tour, if you will, uh, if you'll pardon the pun. Because what I do, as soon as I connect, the first thing I do is I go to Google and see which country I'm in. <laughs> wow, I'm doing a Google search in Poland today or Belgium or Venezuela or wherever your Tor exit node happens to be. Uh, it can give you some interesting perspectives. Yeah, it's also particularly useful for demonstrating to the uh, the new 22-year-old staff in the tech support department what it used to be like when you had a dial-up modem. Actually, I think sometimes a dial-up modem can be faster than Tor. It ain't quick. Well, on that note, I'm going to conclude Software Security Chat Chat 182. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. All of our podcasts are available on iTunes uh, via RSS, in the TuneIn app, uh, whatever your favorite way to get them is, or you can go over to soundcloud.com slash Security. And until next time, stay secure.